The phrase, famous last words, is used as an ironic comment on or a reply to an overconfident assertion that may well be proved wrong by upcoming events. But it can also be used to describe some of the last words that were spoken by famous or infamous people. I have just a few here this morning that I would like to read to you. Todd Beamer, he was a passenger on flight United Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. These are his last recorded words at the end of a cell phone call before Beamer and others attempted to storm the airliner's cockpit to retake it from hijackers. The plane crashed near Shankville, Pennsylvania. This is what he said. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Charlie Chaplin was said to have spoken these last words after a priest reading him last rites said, May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Why not, he said. After all, it belongs to him. Karl Marx's response, when asked by his housekeeper what his last words were, said, Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Comedian Groucho Marx said this, What? Die, my dear? What? That's the last thing I'll do. Johnny Ace, an R&B singer who died in 1954 while playing with a pistol during a break in his concert set, his last words were, I'll show you that it won't shoot. And surgeon Joseph Henry Green was checking his own pulse as he lay dying, and his last word was, stop. Now because our text for this morning comes at the end of the book of 1 Peter, I've titled my sermon this morning, A Final Word. And we're going to divide it up as follows this morning. Two parts. The first one, the Christian's instructions in verses 5 to 9. The Christian's instructions, 5 to 9. And secondly, the Christian's exhortations. That's in verses 10 to 11. The Christian's exhortations. But before we get into the actual sermon this morning, I would like to take a minute just to read, beginning in verse 1 of the chapter, uh, to get the context of this final word of Peter's in his letter to these churches who are in Asia Minor. This is what it says. Follow along. So I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, Peter writes this letter to encourage persecuted and bewildered Christians and to exhort them to stand firm in their faith. To that end, he repeatedly turns their thoughts to eternity, to the joys and glories of their heavenly inheritance, intermixed with some uh, instruction about proper Christian behavior amid unjust suffering. Now, even though this letter is addressed primarily to persecuted Christians, 
The principles Peter teaches are applicable to all suffering, regardless of the cause, unless, of course, it is brought about by one's own sin. The central message of Peter's letter can be summed up in the phrase, trust and obey. Now, all of chapter 5 is Peter's final word to those who are suffering for their faith in Christ. In verses 1 to 4, we have his exhortation and instruction to his fellow elders. These would be elders of those churches found in the areas he mentions in the first few verses of the book, the area that would be known today as modern-day Turkey. Then in verse 5, we see him turning to the younger people in the church and reminding them to be subject to those same elders. Now, the word for elder in this verse is the same word found in verse 1 of chapter 5, where it's used in this technical sense of a church officeholder. Now, it's probably used in the same manner here, although there is no real consensus between commentators as to whether it's just talking about age difference between older and younger or whether it is still referring to those elders in the church body and then those who are under their authority. Now, I tend to fall on the side of thought that within the same paragraph, the same words mean the same thing. So I'm going to go with the elders in the churches where he's sending this letter to. Which then gets us to our first point this morning, which is actually the Christian's instructions. Now we're going to break that up into three little subpoints. The first one's going to be instructions regarding other people. Instructions regarding other people. Next, it's going to be instructions regarding God. And lastly, instructions regarding Satan. Now I'd like you to notice that Peter begins verse 5 with the word, Likewise. Since this word ties the younger, in verse 5, back to what was written about the elders in the first four verses, in what way is Peter expecting them to be like them? To do something in the same way. The Greek adverb for likewise is homoios. And it's connected back to a couple of verbs used in verse 2 regarding the behavior of the elders. Look at verse 2 again. Do you see the two adverbs? My Sunday school class should be able to tell me what they are. Well, they are willingly, not under compulsion, and eagerly, not for shameful gain. You see, what Peter's telling those who are younger is to willingly and eagerly submit themselves to their elders, because this obedience both pleases and glorifies the God of heaven, as well as providing a place of safety, compassion, and joy within the midst of the body of believers who are suffering. Well, Peter then moves on to addressing the entire group in the middle of verse 5 with the words, All of you. You can see his main focus, the thing he wants them to zero in on and strive for more than anything else, is their heart attitudes. And look at what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. But before we look at why Peter sees this as such a necessity, I want you to notice the word clothe here in verse 5. The phrase be clothed translates a rare word that referred to a slave putting on an apron before serving, even as Jesus did before washing the disciples' feet. John 13, 3, 5 says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It is entirely possible that the memories of Jesus are in Peter's heart and his mind, and are certainly coloring all of his thoughts and language. Jesus girded himself with the apron of humility, and so must his followers. So why does Peter give this command to his readers? Well, the Greek aorist tense of the word gives it this understanding of a one-time event, which is really interesting, because in other words, once you put on this humility, you're not supposed to remove it. 
It should remain on you as part of your everyday speech and your conduct. But what would be some of the marks of a person who was actually clothed in humility? Well, there would be a willingness to perform the lowest and the littlest services for Jesus' sake. There would be an awareness of one's own inability to do anything apart from God. There would be a willingness to be ignored by men. And it's not so much there would be self-hating, more as self-forgetfulness and being truly other-centered instead of self-centered. But why does Peter see this as an absolute necessity? Because of what it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Both Peter here in verse 5 and James in his book, chapter 4, verse 6, quote from Proverbs 3.34 where it says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Now also we see in Mary's song of praise in the book of Luke, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Luke 1, 51-52. Well, that gets us to our second set of instructions to the believers, and that is instructions regarding God. We see again at the beginning of verse 6 the word, therefore, which indicates to us, the reader, that Peter is telling us that his command to us in this verse is because of what was mentioned in verse 5. In other words, he is saying, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and we don't want to be in opposition to Almighty God, we must be clear about the need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. As we looked at earlier, it is clear from the Word of God that proud people are in direct opposition to God and His place of sovereign rule over His creation. You know, when we hear the words, the mighty hand of God. We are reminded of those Old Testament passages related to God's deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt with many signs and wonders. Moses, speaking to the people in Exodus 13.9, says this, With a strong and mighty hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy, as Moses is giving his farewell address to the people of Israel, he makes references several times to the strength of God and his mighty hand. For example, Deuteronomy 9.26 says, I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And it is precisely because of that mighty hand and strong arm that we can believe with absolute confidence that we will, at the proper time, be exalted by God. But why does that matter? Well, because the same word used here for our exaltation by God, is used elsewhere in the New Testament regarding Jesus' final place of honor given to him by the Father. Acts chapter 2, 33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And also in Philippians 2, 8-9, it says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now we don't know how or the when necessarily, and certainly we will not be exalted at the level of Jesus Christ, but for sure at the proper time we will, by the mercy and grace of God, have a most glorious future. So not only are we to humble ourselves under Almighty God, but we're also told by Peter to cast all our worries and anxieties on him. True humility is shown by our ability to cast our care upon God 
It is proud presumption to take things into our own care and worry about things that God has promised to take care of. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Matthew six thirty one to 34 George Mueller, who was a Christian evangelist and the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, used to tell the story of a boy who was walking along the road carrying a heavy load. A man came along in a horse-drawn cart and offered him a ride. The boy climbed in the cart, but he kept the heavy load on his shoulders. When the man asked him why he didn't put the load down on the cart, the boy replied, I don't want to burden the horse. We've climbed, if you're a believer, into the cart of salvation through Christ. He is, in fact, bearing our load. Why don't we let go and put it all on him? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30. Now that word casting is a word filled with energy. He didn't say, lay all your cares upon him, because we must do it more forcefully than that. The idea is to throw it away from you. This work of casting can be so difficult that we need to use two hands to do it the hand of prayer, and the hand of faith. As the well-known preacher C.H. Spurgeon put it, prayer tells God what the care is and asks God to help, while faith believes that God can and will do it. Prayer spreads the letter of trouble and grief before the Lord and opens all of its budget, and then faith cries, I believe that God cares and cares for me. I believe that he will bring me out of my distress and make it promote his own glory. And that's exactly what Peter tells us here also. We can give all of our cares and burdens to Christ because he cares for us. <coughs> Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What more must God do to prove the genuineness of his love and care for us? And that's precisely why it would be foolish to put your hope for your future in any other hands but God's, considering the two reasons given here are exaltation and God's loving and merciful care for us. Well, Peter then moves on to his instruction for us as Christians in regard to our enemy, the devil. Look again at what Peter tells us. He gives us these commands. Be sober-minded, watchful, resist him. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it means to be self-controlled, clear-headed. And it certainly can mean to not have your mind dulled by the use of any type of drug, whether it be alcohol or prescription or any other drug that's going to affect your ability to think clearly. When you are engaged in a conflict with an adversary who's described as a roaring lion who wants to devour you, the last thing you should want is to be unable to think clearly. Throughout his book, Peter visits this idea of sober-mindedness multiple times. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 5, here, verse 8. Driving home the necessity of this characteristic. And each time, it is tied to the issue of enduring through various trials and hardships. 
Well, along with being self-controlled and clear-minded, the word also carries the meaning of being calm and collected in spirit. But why is this important? Two reasons. The first is because this is a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy. I know of several people who have dealt with a variety of demonic forces, and uh, they can bring a great deal of fear into our hearts and our minds. When a person panics, they tend not to be able to think clearly or make good decisions. Yet it is at that precise time that we need to be able to be rational and calm. Well, the other reason to be calm in spirit is because of the truth, which we already talked about, and that is God's care for us. If we know and fully are convinced of this one fact, then we have no need to let fear or anxiety dictate our responses to our circumstances, since God works out all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Well, Peter next tells us to be watchful. Just like the guard in the watchtower has the responsibility to be vigilant and give strict attention to his circumstances so that some destructive calamity would not come upon those under his watch, so we ought to be giving strict attentiveness to our sworn enemy, the devil, so as not to be caught off guard and have some spiritual calamity befall us. As William Barclay writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, here is the law of Christian effort and of Christian vigilance. We must be sober and watchful. The fact that we cast everything upon God does not give us the right to sit back and to do nothing. Cromwell's advice to his troops was, trust in God and keep the powder dry. Peter knew how hard this vigilance was. For he remembered how in Gethsemane he and his fellow disciples slept when they should have been watching with Christ. The Christian is the man who trusts, but at the same time puts all his effort and all his vigilance into the business of living for Christ. Well, the last of Peter's instructions to the believers regarding the devil is for us to resist him, to stand against him in opposition as one who is arrayed for battle. And according to Peter, we are to do this by being strong, firm, and immovable in our faith. Just as it says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, <clears throat> but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Now one of the reasons Peter tells us that we will be able to stand firm is because of our knowledge of the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by fellow believers around the world. But why would knowing this help us to resist the devil and stand firm in faith? Well, Edmund Clowney, in his commentary on 1 Peter, gives four reasons for why he thinks there are advantages that can be gained from knowing that your brothers are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. First, he says there is encouragement in knowing that you are not alone and isolated, suffering in some unique way. Second, he said you are reminded that the bond that unites 
you to Jesus Christ also joins you to the family of God throughout the world. Suffering Christians have a caring fellowship with those similarly afflicted. Thirdly, Christians are reminded that suffering is inherent in the Christian faith. Through suffering, they have fellowship with Christ and their faith is purified. And fourthly, knowing of the sufferings of the brotherhood stimulates hope because the spread of persecution and trials points to the nearness of the end. Well, that brings us to our second point in this morning's message, which is the Christian's exhortations. Look again at what it says here. It begins with this, And after you have suffered a little while. Now remember, Peter's writing to believers scattered throughout this region of modern-day Turkey, believers who are already suffering, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 3, 7, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, and be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again in chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then again in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. But why can Peter say here, a little while? Well, one of the reasons he can describe this suffering this way is because of what we saw in verse 9. Now, in verse 9, Peter uses a word that sometimes translations like the ESV, my, the one I use, NIV, and the New King James Version, renders it, are being experienced or are undergoing these sufferings. But the Greek word used here is epitaleo, and the word should be better translated as are being accomplished. The King James Version uses that, the NASB, and many others. But when the verse is written this way, it adds this idea of attaining a goal and having a purpose for what is happening to them. So this is how the verse would sound with a different translation. It says, But resist him from in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And here's what's exciting about that understanding of suffering. And it's not just for those to whom Peter's writing, but to all believers around the world at all times. It will accomplish its purpose at the hands of God. As John Gill writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, the same trials which the brotherhood, who stand in the same relation to God and Christ as they do, endure. And which must be expected while they are in the world. But this is the great mercy, that they are endured in this world. There will be none in the world to come. 
They will be accomplished and finished here. And every believer has his measure, which must be filled up. And so has the whole of Christ, his church. And when they are fulfilled, they will be no more. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that same fact in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where he says this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, the second reason that Peter can describe suffering as a little while is because of the source of the suffering. Well, it is true that persecutions and hostile acts against God's people are carried out by evil men and women in the physical world that we see. Yet, according to the word of God, nothing comes into the life and realm of the believer that wasn't ordained by the hand of Almighty God. Again, Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We also see in Job chapter 2, 9 and 10, he says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So why is accomplishing or completing the suffering so vitally important to the believer? Because of God's response to us after it is finished. Look again at verse 10. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everything we have in this life is by the grace of God. And as we can see here, everything we will have in eternity is also granted to us by God himself through his grace. Just look at that list of actions God will be doing for us and to us. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. Just reading through that list gives one the impression of stability and security. We will be immovable from our position established by God through Christ in the kingdom of God forever. Forever. And this is our hope and confidence that by humbling ourselves under God's sovereign rule over our lives, we will arrive safe and unharmed on the other shore. As most of you know, we've seen many significant changes in societies all around the world in the last number of years. Anti-Semitism is again on the rise, as well as an increased hostility towards Christ's body of believers. We also are seeing a passionate drive to establish and protect sins of various kinds by declaring them to be the laws of the land. And there also appears to be a concerted effort to impose a global governance upon the citizens of all countries in a way that has not been seen before. So what should we do amid such times? Remember, first of all, that the only real powerful tool the devil has is fear, namely, fear of death. And since by faith we no longer fear death, we can resist the prince of this world and all of his minions because our final dwelling place is being prepared for us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can confidently, in the strength of the Lord, stand firm in our faith against our advancing foe. Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him 
He's ever faithful. Trust him, for his will is best. Trust him, for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. I mean, trouble, trouble is inevitable. It spawned the counseling ministry. Therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, support groups dedicate their lives to helping people deal with grief, addictions, abuse, and stress. There are many solutions offered. You can pop a pill, uncork a bottle, take a vacation to escape. Others turn to more healthy approaches, but really accomplishing little or nothing. So what's the Christian to do? Trust God. Remember a time when your child got a sticker or a splinter in their finger? First, they try to pull it out with their fingers or teeth, but they can't. You notice and you offer to dig it out for them. At first, they refuse. They know it's going to hurt if you get a needle and dig in their finger for that splinter. You ask them to believe that what is painful will relieve their pain and that what looks dangerous is their only safety. You ask them to trust that hurting the finger is the only way to make it stop hurting. doesn't make sense, but you're their parent. They know you would not lie to them. You love them and want what's best. So against all the evidence, full of emotion, they trust you to do what is best for them. So, against all the evidence that our physical eyes can see, we must also, with emotion, trust God to do what is best for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do live in times that are disturbing. We see a great deal of angst and anger towards your people, towards you, towards the gospel, towards righteousness, towards purity, towards holiness. All the things that you champion and want for your people, the world seems to be having a growing hostility towards all of it. And it's not just in our country, Lord, it's across the globe. And your people are suffering for it all over the world far more than we're suffering here. But as Joseph Zahn once told us, if you think you haven't suffered, just wait. The time will come. And so, Father and God, we do need your grace to simply trust you. As Peter exhorted and encouraged these Christians in this, what is now modern-day Turkey as they were suffering, that same truth applies to us, that we must trust you no matter what heartache comes our way. Because we know it is all ultimately by your hand, for your purpose, in our lives, to ultimately one day present us faultless before your throne. And that's our hope, and that's our glory, and that's our joy. We thank you for it, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.